Yeah, family life, eh? isn't it nice? Just perfect, it's perfect family. Anybody have a perfect family here today? Because if so, come on up, put the mic on, I want to hear from you, because we're all trying to figure this thing out called relationship and family and life, and those of us who've put our saving faith in Jesus really believe that he holds the key to uh, some of the things, well, not some of the things, all the things that we feel are, um, you know, way beyond us to figure out on our own. So uh, we're glad you're here today. And um, are you ready for some heat? 38 degrees on Tuesday, you're ready. You know, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I think Canadians, they're never happy, are they? Like, I'm talking about these other Canadians, not us, but these other Canadians. You know, living through winters, it's like we can't wait till the summer comes, and then it's 38 degrees, we say, I can't believe it's so hot, and it's like... Let's enjoy the heat on Tuesday and no complaining allowed, right? Winter comes too quickly and it stays too long. And a big election moment coming up on Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? I think it is. I've already voted in the advance polls. Thursday. Thank you. Thursday. Um, I, maybe some of you have already got to the advance polls and have voted, like my wife and I did, and um, we've already cast our ballot. Uh, just want a reminder to you, uh, my grandparents... Um, fought in wars in order that I could cast my ballot. Anybody else's grandparent do that? Perhaps parent did that? Um, don't grow cynical on me. Go to the polls and vote. That's an amen moment. That's an amen moment. Uh, really, I'm serious about that. Um, it's important that we do this. Uh, every year the stats come out of how many Canadians went to the polls, provincial, municipal, federal elections, and, and the percentage is far too low. That's my opinion. We need to get more people voting. It is a privilege and a responsibility. So are you going to be at the polls? Yes. All right, good, good stuff. Um, yeah, that's good. And... Um, I want to thank you for praying for me, by the way. I'm making progress, which is good. I got a good report this past week, and uh, yeah, it's coming along. So you have, been, you have been tremendous. So many of you have reached out to me and just asked how I'm doing and offering prayers and all that stuff. So thank you for that. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, so we're going to continue today this series um, on this whole idea of the elephant in the family room. And uh, I realize that we can't talk about everything, uh, there are so many elephants to talk about, so we've chosen a few, and um, this is not the theme for this morning, but I, I did read it. I'm doing some coursework and enjoying it immensely, um, and I'm just starting a course next week, or yeah, next week, so I had to do some reading. So this morning, I was doing a little bit of reading early in the morning, and I stumbled upon this quote, and I wanted to share it with you. The reason why I want to share it with you is that... Um, over the last number of years, I would probably say decades, um, there has been a new, um, uh, what's the word for it? A new sense of the culture creeping into the church. And if you're new to church, um, we've, we've decided, many of us in this room have decided that Jesus is Lord, which means he's king, that he is the one unique son of, a God, son of God. We're gonna follow him. Uh, we need forgiveness, and, and he is a beautiful king. And, um, but what happens, because we live in a culture, and it's not new to us, when you live beside a culture, and we live in a Western secularized culture, it's easy for us to adopt the values of the culture. And um, so something has crept into the Christian community over the last number of years. It's called cohabiting. 
And I realized that it can be a complicated conversation. Um, if there are young adults in the room, what I'm going to read to you now, and it's just really brief, and it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the teaching theme for this morning, but I just wanted to share it with you. Uh, it, it can save you a lot of heartache and pain. And those of you who may be cohabiting, this may leverage you again, because we're all on a journey. We're all on a journey. What we want to do around here is teach you faithfully the ways of God, faithfully the ways of God, without judgment, okay? So we're all on a journey. So if perhaps you're cohabiting, um, there can be lots of reasons why that's the case. And so without judgment today, I want to invite you into the ways of God. And the ways of God work. <laughs> I want to invite you into a good and beautiful life. The ways of God work. Generation after generation, society after society, you can find the evidence that where a large group of people say yes to the gospel of Jesus, there is a societal lift. It happens in individual lives, it happens in families, and it happens in nations. This is, the data says this. The prosperity of the Western world has largely been impacted by the yes we have said to a Judeo-Christian worldview. Okay? When we move away from that, we move away, from my perspective, you would expect to hear this from someone like me, we move away from the blessing of God. We don't want to move away from the blessing of God. So, can I just read this to you? It's written by academics who've done their homework. It's a textbook on its 10th edition, okay? So this is, this is good research. Um, let me just read this. More people today than ever before live together before marrying. The statuses of premarital cohabitation versus living together as married people seem to show differences. For example, 39% of cohabiting households include children. And the odds of a couple staying together, hear me on this one, ready? The odds of a couple staying together two years after the birth of a child are six times greater in marriage relationships than in cohabiting relationships. Did you hear that? A couple who moves in together and starts having a family, according to the data, tells us that that family if they were married versus cohabiting, six times more likely for them to stay together than if they just remain cohabiting. It's good for family life for people to get married. Not done with the, the, the quote quite yet. Let me keep reading. Cohabitation also seems to have unique gender. Now, I'm raising two young adult daughters, okay? So I'm saying amen to this here. Cohabitation also seems to have unique gender-related aspects. In one study, men who cohabited premaritally are less dedicated in marriage than those who did not. My two young adult daughters, make them wait. Make the men wait. Oh, but I love you. I'm committed to you. Put a ring on the finger and let's get this party started right? <laughs> if you love me, you'll make a commitment to me. And you know what I'm also going to say here today? Covenant is not, it might be out of style, but it hasn't lost its power. It has not lost its power. The timelessness of the gospel of Jesus, it still works. Six times more likely, if we love our kids, we'll get married. That's what the study says. 
If we love our kids, we'll get married. That is consistent with the revelation that we hold in our hands known as the Bible or God's word, timeless. All right, tough word to start to talk today, but a good word. So if you're raising young adults, teach them. The data tells us it's consistent with the word of God and God's word works. Okay, the elephant in the family room. We're gonna talk uh, today about um, being alone in your family. And uh, so here's where we're going to go with the teaching this morning. You might be a married couple. You might have a family with children. Uh, this talk is for you too, because here's where we're going to go. The first idea we're going to talk about is that there are people in our congregation, in our circle of influence and relationships, in our families, who um, have been divorced, uh, have been widowed. Um, there's widows, widowers. There's people who are leading one-parent families with children. And, um, and, and there are people who never married. And they're, they're single adults trying to make life work, but without what we would call a traditional family setting. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to be single uh, from that perspective. And then we're going to talk about what it means for some of us to be alone in our family in the sense that uh, we're a part of a family. We're a spouse. We have children, perhaps. Uh, but we're the only one in our close circle and extended circle who happen to be Jesus followers. And we feel all alone in that context. You might be married to somebody who's an unbeliever, and it's like, I feel so alone as it relates to my faith, the orientation of my life around Jesus. And then we're going to talk about something that all of us can relate to today, is um, sometimes friends feel more like family, and how to build really healthy friendships. Uh, that's not just for single adults, that's for all of us, because we all need friends. We read earlier, Pastor Al read earlier, or Pastor Kristen actually, about how God puts the lonely in families. And so we're going to talk about that. All right, so you ready to go? Let's go together. Here's our passage to ponder. The end of all things is near. And we said this last week. We said it previous weeks. If the end of all things was near when Peter wrote this, then it's even nearer now. And he says, in light of the fact that the end of all things is near, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Why? So that you can pray. And then he says, above all else, this is huge. He says, love each other deeply. The end of all things is near. What do you do? You don't run away to a cabin and hide somewhere. You move into relationships and love people. The end of all things is near. Become a lover of people. Love each other deeply. Because why? We all need this. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, some sins need to be talked about at a certain level, depending on the nature of the sin. Other sins, and the ones that Peter's talking about now, we step on each other's toes when we're doing a two-step dance. That's what happens in life. Let's not just stop the music and say, hey, you stepped on my toes. Keep moving. Keep dancing. And so love covers. And we would do well in our marriages, in our families, in our churches if we just said, you know what? That's not how I do it. Well, that probably wasn't right. Is it worth making a mountain out of a molehill? Let's keep moving. Love covers a multitude of sins. And thanks be to God that we've had a multitude of sins covered. Anybody in the room had a multitude of sins covered? Yeah, thanks be to God for that. So in light of the fact we've had our sins covered, what do we do? We're in the business, not of cover-ups, not of sweeping stuff under the carpet, but lavishing people with grace. That's what we do as the people of God. All right, so marriage was God's idea from the very beginning, right? I've recited this many, many times. Um, it's not good, God says to the first man. It's not good that man be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In Hebrew, suitable helper means 
rescuer, rescuer. God makes women to rescue men. And not from a sink full of dishes, and not from a laundry hamper that's overflowing. God made the first woman to rescue the first man from his aloneness, from the absence of his community, from community itself. And you, you got to get your head around this one. Sin has not entered into the experience. God and Adam have unbroken companionship. And then God says, something is still not good. He needs something with skin on to relate with. He needs a companion. He needs to walk shoulder to shoulder with someone. The text tells us a bit later, he was probably walking with God on a regular basis. God came looking for his friends and they were hiding. But he needed something. He needed something different and God made the first woman. So it's not good that man be alone, but then Paul writes in the New Testament that being alone is all right. So what is it? Not good that man be alone? Or, hey, listen, if you're single, Paul says, my paraphrase, don't change your state. Just, hey, hold up. It's not so bad. Paul says, I'm single. You can stay single too. So we're going to address some of that today as we move through this. So the first point is this. The challenges and opportunities of being single, and they are very real. And there were some fantastic people in the Bible who were single. John the Baptist was single. Ruth, right? The Moabitess, she became, she was a widow. Um, we have, um, um, who else is throughout this uh, story? We have Jeremiah, who is, is single. Um, we have Elijah, likely single. Daniel was single. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, very likely a widow. As Jesus is nearing his death, very likely, Joseph had died. Jesus himself never married. So there are some wonderful, beautiful people of God who were single. Um, there's a couple people I want to draw your attention to. Anna. Do you remember Anna in the gospel account? Um, Luke's gospel, chapter 2. Anna was a prophet. She was also there in the temple, the text tells us, beginning at verse 3. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. That's a short marriage relationship before her husband passed. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. It's a long time. I don't know when she got married, but she was probably a widow for, for a number of decades. This is what the Bible tells us about her. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. What I love about Anna is that the text doesn't seem to imply that when her husband died, she didn't get angry and bitter and resentful and blame God and, and walk away from her faith. I'm sure it was incredibly hard. We don't get all the nuances of her experience, but I bet you it was really, really hard for her. But she hung on to God, and it seems like her devotion became even more intense. And listen to what happened as she pressed into her relationship with God, not stepping away. She came along... In this one occasion, just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God, and she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. She was useful to Mary and Joseph. The text earlier says she was a prophet. 
And so she's speaking the words of God over this couple in such a timely manner. But she ended up moving with great devotion toward God. Uh, another woman shows up in Acts chapter 9. She's known as um, Tabitha or Dorcas. So there was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things. I'd like to know this woman. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him. Please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. And the room was filled with widows. The room was filled with widows. It looks like Tabitha, or Dorcas, was a widow. And she's spending time with other widows. And what is she doing with her time? She's doing good things to help other people. And so uh, the room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas, Tabitha, had made for them. Anna and Tabitha used their single season of life to help other people to speak on God's behalf, and to do God's work. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means to use our singleness well. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the scriptures don't tell us all the pain that Dorcas, Tabitha, uh, again, or Anna experienced, but the pain was real. And it's not easy being single. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the Apostle Paul also invites us. He says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, I wish everyone were single just as I am. Paul didn't seem like he was uh, discontent in his singleness. He says, I wish everyone were single just as I am. And then he says, well, however, each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. Now, he's not making a sweeping statement here for everyone necessarily, but he's saying some people seem to have an endowment some people seem to have a capacity or a gifting from God in order to stay single and to use their singleness. And so to understand this passage, you have to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so if you're a young adult here today, I don't want you to go home and say, post on Instagram, Pastor Dave said it's better not to get married. That's not what I mean. My daughter's getting married on September the 24th. Pretty excited about it. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, that's a big deal. Marriage is something that God sanctions and approves and celebrates and and it's part of the beautiful divine plan. Marriage is God's idea, and it's absolutely beautiful. But it's not, not for everybody, according to Scripture. It's not for everybody. There's some people who have endowments, again, to remain single and to use their single state for service um, of God. So here's some challenges. Let's just be honest in the room today. We live largely in a couple culture. We just do. Um, I find myself, and thank you for being gracious with me, those of you who are single adults here today, there are moments where I project onto our teaching themes my season of life. I'm married with two young adult daughters, and I, I bring all of that to the teaching ministry here. And so sometimes it's not, it, it's not front of mind for me, but it needs to be more front of mind. There are more single adults in Canada now than maybe there's ever been before. Um, people are marrying later and later in life because of education or financial issues or whatever it might be. They're living at home longer. I have two young adult daughters still living at home. Um, and, and many of you do as well. And sometimes they go away and they come back and they go away and they come back again. It's sort of the way it works. It's not cheap to buy a house these days. Have you checked the housing market? Not cheap to rent a house these days. 
Um, and so people are staying at home a lot longer. But we live in a couple culture. And you're familiar with this, right? The saying that goes something like this, three's a crowd. Sometimes single adults feel like they are a fifth wheel or that they're the third part of a scenario and they don't feel necessarily welcome. And so we live in a couple culture and we need to be aware of that. Three should not be a crowd around the people of God as we are family together. Um, death and divorce are painful. I haven't had a lot of losses in my life, but I've walked with a lot of people who have, and I know that death is very, very hard to process, especially for the married. I know many of you who've been married for decades and, and have walked through the very difficult season of saying goodbye to a spouse. Not easy to do. The pain is very real. Others of you have been through a painful divorce, and it might not have even been your desire, but somebody else decided to step out of the marriage. And there's pain involved in this. This is very, very real. Death and divorce are painful. And we were. We were made for community. And sometimes for single adults, community feels elusive. It's a very, very real challenge. So that's not just challenges. There are opportunities as well. As I mentioned earlier, those of us who are single can be more single-minded as it relates to our devotion to Jesus. Um, here's Paul again, right? He says, I want you to be free. This is 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 32. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. This is his argument again on, on why being single isn't so bad. He says, an unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife, and that's very appropriate. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has been married, or has never been married, pardon me, um, can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband, and that's very appropriate. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you, I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. And so uh, being married creates a, um, a challenge because our full devotion to God looks different because of our earthly responsibilities and commitments that we've made. Paul says you can be single-minded in your devotion. I also think that there are fewer considerations and greater flexibility when you're single. You know, if, if I was to have an opportunity to go on a cruise because a friend asked me to go last minute, I would have some consultation. <laughs> There'd be a marital conversation going on, and, and I'd be like, how's this work with the vacation budget for 2022? And, uh, and then my girls might have a couple things to inject as well, and, and there, there would be an interesting conversation that would happen. Thank you, Pastor Gary. I have permission. Somebody run and tell P in the fusion room. It's been confirmed. There was a prophetic word shared in the gathering, and I am to go on that cruise. Thank you. Now, I know of a woman in our congregation. She shared it recently, and she's thrilled. She's excited. She's a single adult, and another single adult friend of her said, I've got an opportunity. Let's go on this cruise. And she's going. She's going. She's saying bags are packed, tickets in my, let's do this. You don't have to ask anybody's permission. She's gone. So there are some, there are some challenges, and they're very real. And there are some opportunities as it relates to being single. 
And like life, nothing is all good and nothing is all bad. It's, there's there's mixed, mixed bags to this. So that's our first thought for consideration this morning. Here's our second one. Um, feeling alone when we're not alone. Feeling alone when we're not alone. You can be married and be with your spouse and feel lonely. You can have a family with a handful of children and feel lonely. You can be in a workplace. You can be in a church. You could be in a small group community. You're with people, but you still feel all alone, but you're not. Loneliness is a really, really big problem. Uh, There's actually a political office in the UK. They have an elected official who is a minister of loneliness. And I don't mean clergy. I mean like a parliamentarian. Because loneliness is debilitating. And so some people can be alone, but be content. Others can be with groups of people and feel the pain of loneliness. Uh, Psalm 68, God sets the lonely in families. And we talked about that last week, right? The two-circle view of family. This was Jesus' view, immediate, original family context, and then there's this other circle called the people of God or the family of God. God sets the lonely in families, and it's true that we can feel lonely in our families. But specifically today, I wanted to just, just for a moment or two, put the emphasis on what it means to be in a marriage where one person's a believer and the other person's not. That can be really hard. Um, Maybe you got married and you were both unbelievers. Or maybe you got married and you were both believers, but one person no longer is. Uh, but you're in this marriage relationship where you're doing your absolute best to orient your life around Jesus, but your spouse is not. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 very clearly for us that when that is the case, that we are to stay in those marriage relationships as long as the unbelieving spouse will have us. Just because they're an unbeliever doesn't mean we should say, nah, you know, I don't want to be in this thing anymore. I met a Christian at church. I met a Christian in a prayer gathering. And I'm going to leave my unbelieving spouse because I have more in common with her or him over here. Scripture is really clear that as long as that person will have us and they're an unbeliever, we should stay in that relationship. Now, again, there's no abuse happening and unfaithfulness and all that stuff, right? There's some conditions to, to covenant love. We don't just say, oh, it's, you know, you, anything goes. Anything, everything doesn't just go. There, there are conditions to covenant love. They're clear in the Bible for us, too. But if none of that's happened, and this person wants to stay in the relationship, Scripture says, stay there because you are a witness. You're an opportunity to bring light to that place, to that person, and to light up your family and your marriage. But it's not easy, right? It's not easy to, to stay there and to stay rooted. And, uh, and so um, it's, it's a challenge, but, but Paul speaks to that. Or, or maybe it's at work, right? You're the only Christian at work, being alone there. You feel it. The moment people, this has happened to me so many times, the moment people discover that I'm a minister, and I try to keep that hidden for as long as possible, trust me. And it's not because I'm embarrassed or ashamed of my calling. I am so privileged to do this. But I just know the way the culture operates. People just put like this stigma on me. They stereotype me. They think I'm all about you fill in the blank. Right? They characterize me. And I don't want that to happen. It's not just ministers. The moment you tell somebody you're a Jesus-following person, you're identifying with Christ in some way, all sorts of word associations fill their mind and they start kind of potentially feeling afraid or nervous or don't know what to do. And if they happen to be profane or swear in some way, they're apologetic to you. And 
eh, that's kind of nice. But at the same time, it's like, hey, you know what? You can swear around me. That didn't go over big when I just said that. <laughs> I'm not saying that you, by the way, can swear around me. No, but really, if I'm out with my neighbor and they drop a word, I am not a China doll. I am not going to crumble to the ground and break. I'm glad they have respect, and I think that's what that's about. But you know where I'm going with this. They treat us differently. And you feel it. And so sometimes, even in our workplaces, we don't get included the same way. And it can be a lonely thing. Identifying with Jesus is costly. We don't live in other parts of the world where we have to hide in our basements and we have to have small group communities with candles lit and, and all that stuff, thanks be to God. We have a subtler form of it in a secular culture where people look at us sideways. Sometimes exclusion is painful. And some of us feel that because we're Jesus followers. Now, at the same time, I hope your coworkers know you're a Jesus follower. I remember reading something once where this author said, is there enough evidence about your life where you could be prosecuted in a court of law for being a Jesus follower? Or would the case not stand up? Because you're not clearly Christian. Oh, Lord, may we all be found guilty. May it be unanimous from the jury. They return the verdict. He's guilty of being a Christian because of how he lives, how she lives. They've gone public with their faith. They got baptized they're not judgmental. They're not self-righteous. They're full of humility and compassion, and they talk about Jesus like he's their friend. Right? May that be so. Colossians 3. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. How does this get applied in the workplace? Giving thanks through him to God the Father. Other parts of Paul's writing says, you don't work for men, you work for God. Not just pastors, teachers. Wherever you draw your paycheck, if you are employed, you go to work to serve Jesus there. And that doesn't mean that you're holding Bible studies, even though if that's permitted, that'd be wonderful. It means, what it means, actually, is that you are working for your employer as though you are working for God. So you show up on time. You don't cut corners. You tell the truth. You're just there. You, you bring your whole self to work. Um, and that's how we demonstrate, again, who we are as Christians. And so in marriage and at work and in life, as we've already been talking about. All right, let's wrap up with this, and this will be the end of our teaching. Number three, cultivating friendships that feel like family. Um, I was thinking about this recently. How do you know that you and another person are in a friendship? H how do you know that that person over there is my friend? What has to happen in order for you to say, yeah, no, we're friends? Not, not, I know who that guy is. No, we're friends. What has to take place? Well, sociologists would tell us it's about 200 hours of shared experience. That's a lot of hours. And when we're huddled at home behind our screens, no wonder we don't have too many friends. Am I speaking to you this morning? I don't know how many friends you have. I hope you have just a small handful of people 
that you would say, they are my friend. I've got a relationship with a, a friend named John Osmond. We've been buddies for 30 plus years. We meet about once a month. He's a pastor downtown Toronto. I was a pastor in Kelowna. He was in Edmonton. We served together in Waterloo. We went to school together. We have done life together. John Osmond is the brother I never had. Have you, do you have a friend like that? He is the brother I never had. I, I was blessed to have one sister, but I never had a brother. But God gave me John, and he is a brother. He knows everything about me. He and I get together, and vulnerability happens. We disclose. We talk about our lives. We talk about our marriage relationships, our vocational callings, our physical health. We're going camping in a couple of weeks with a couple other buddies. We do life together, and it's huge for me. Different last name, but we're still family, literally family. I want you to have someone like John in your life. It's funny, I'm doing this secular degree and I see all this Christian stuff show up in it without the Christian language. It's amazing. And I'm doing this, I'm doing this course on group counseling. And at the end of group counseling, one of the ways you can end a group session with people is they say, this is what they say, they say in the course, I want you to take a moment, they say, go around the circle and share your wish for someone. And what they do is they bless people. They speak prophetically over them. My wish for you is that the divorce you've been going through will not define you in life. My wish for you is that the fact that you are gripped by, by jealousy, that that grip will become lighter and lighter. My wish for you is that you would love yourself because you're way too hard on you. Amen. And that's what they do in this group counseling session. Well, my wish for you today is that you would have a friend, one, that sticks closer than a brother. And if you put your saving faith in Jesus, you already have him. I'm talking about somebody else. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Here comes Eve. And she's glorious and she's beautiful. And Adam's life changes forever. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. But I pray, I bless I put my hand out over you and say, may you have a friendship, one at least, that you could say this person is more like family than they are like a friend. So what is the difference between an acquaintance and a friend? Vulnerability, disclosure, trust, shared experience. When you have that, somebody that you believe in and they believe in you, you found yourself a friend. And it's a beautiful thing. All right, anybody want a friend in the room? Put your hands up and then look for somebody else and say, maybe we should be friends. <laughs> All right, Proverbs 17, 17, a friend is, look at the way the writer of, I'm enjoying this teaching, by the way, this morning, and I, I just feel so much at home with you, and uh, I, I love this proverb, the way it's brilliantly written, and you got to understand the way the Proverbs are, are written is that they're literally contrasts or parallel statements that help you get at something. So the writer says, and here's the, it's, it's brilliant, a friend, underline that, a friend is always loyal. Proverbs 17, 17. And a brother, underline that. And a brother is born to help in time of need. Is it possible that a friend could feel like family? Yes, the writer says. Yes. Friends can be like family. 
And so you might be all alone in your family, but you can find a friend who feels like family. I believe that right to my toes. Ecclesiastes 4, two people are better than one, absolutely, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. I've shared this at weddings so many times, but it's not just about marriage, even though it can be applied there. It can be applied in life. So friendships are not always easy to form and unfortunately not always common. But when you find one, it's a beautiful thing. So I'm going to leave you with some handles today, okay? And then uh, Pastor Al's going to come back. How to build healthy friendships. Really, really quick. Here it comes. Um, put yourself out there. I, I spoke to our YouTube church family today, on Wednesday when I did the pre-recording for this. And I said, listen, you want friends? Come to church. Come to church. Now, thanks be to God you're on YouTube, but there's more. <laughs> There's more. There's more, right, than YouTube and screens? Thanks be to God for them. Just a reminder to everybody here, if you go away on vacation, YouTube is exactly for that. A short-term solution, not a long-term substitute. That's what we did. Short-term solution, not a long-term substitute. So if you're away on vacation, stay current with us, dial in. You're not feeling well that Sunday, dial in. But it's not intended to be, I do church on YouTube now. I do church on YouTube. Now, again, you know my heart, right? I, I just can't stand shame. So we're not shaming people. There are lots of reasons why some people might be there. And so we don't paint people with a big wide brush and say they're all in the same category. Some people need to come back to church and they're able-bodied and not vulnerable and all that stuff. Come on back. Some people, you know, they're worried because we're not wearing masks. They can wear a mask. Come on back, right? That's the invitation. But there are lots of reasons, and we don't want to paint people with wide, broad, broad brushes. All right, so put yourself out there. Get involved. Um, follow your interests. If you're interested in paddling, go with a group of men up to, uh, where'd they go again, Pastor? Uh, up by Bancroft. Go up there and paddle. 17 or 20 of them or so went up there and paddled their hearts out. They love it. They're on the water, kumbaya, campfire, right? It's awesome. <laughs> Others of you are saying, I'll go camping, but is there air conditioning provided, right? I know how it works. <laughs> Follow your interests. There are lots of people who love to paddle, kayak, pump. Some people love to cycle. I love to ride, ride a pedal bike. Once my back's healed up, that's where I'm headed. And, and I think we should get a bunch of people from the church and go cycling sometime. Um, so there's lots of things. Put yourself out there. Follow your interests. Choose friends wisely, by the way. And I say this before, if you're going to be vulnerable with somebody, just like going into a pool, put your toe in a little bit, put your knee in over the side, feel the temperature sliding up to your waist, don't just dive into the deep end. Going into the deep end can be a problem if you don't know who you're um, making yourself vulnerable with. Make sure that there's a measure of trust as you, go, as you move along. Reach back. When somebody reaches out, reach back. Um, and you don't have to always reach back, you can reach out and initiate something. Sometimes people, I don't have any friends. Well, when was the last time you kind of put yourself out there and invited somebody else to go for coffee? That's how we build friends. And uh, shift the focus and look for connection. When I say shift the focus, um, move it off of ourselves. We can be thinking about other people and asking people questions about themselves. It's always good in conversations to ask people about themselves. Here's one thing I know about people. People love to talk about themselves. So ask them questions about themselves and they'll talk. And then finally, ask God. He can give you a friend. You do all the things you can do. You ask God to do what only he can do and just watch how some things will happen for you. And we all need relationships, no question about it.
All right, I want to pray for you today. Uh, being alone is challenging. It comes with challenges and opportunities. And, um, and we, we do live in a couple culture, and we need to be mindful of people who are, are not coupling. And, um, and for some of you today, the next right thing for you to do is to say, you know what, honey, we need to get married. That's what we need to do. We need to get married. And um, there's, there's always a next step. For others of you, it's I need to uh, step into a friendship circle or at least put myself where I can find one. And, um, and then we'll, again, use our singleness for God's glory, find connection with the people of God, and may he provide friendships along the way. But let me pray for you, and then Pastor Al's going to come back. Lord, thank you today for your grace. Um, thank you for your love. Thank you for the way that you are orchestrating the details of our lives. Some are very, very painful, and it's hard for us. And there are people in this room today who uh, are not laughing through some of the things that others of us have laughed through because it's very hard for them. And uh, it's easy for us, Lord, to project onto others our life situation. And we are all different, walking a different journey uh, with you in common. Um, but it's hard. And uh, Lord, for the one-parent families especially today, we pray for a large measure of your grace to come to them. Give them what they need as they lead their families. And it's, it's very challenging economically. It's challenging uh, emotionally in lots of ways. And for the widow or widower who is here today and the grief from the loss that is months or years old but feels like it happened yesterday, pray, God, that you would come to them and give them what they need to. I pray that you would lead them and guide them and help them to find strength in you. And, um, and Lord, for, for others who are just here and they feel lonely, whether it's in their marriage or in their family or in their workplace or some who are just lacking a circle of friendship that I described earlier that just seems so foreign to them, I pray that you would come to them, Lord, and help them find a place to belong, a real authentic friendship. Um, and, and teach us, Lord, what it means to relate with each other. It's more art than science, and it's not easy. And so help us, God, again, to move into circles where we can bring so much value to other people and then just receive the reciprocal value that comes back to us. So, Lord, we, uh, we love you today, and we thank you that you're speaking. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see, and we'll always say thanks to you for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.